We'll always have a pork dish. Uh, it's, my, it's my favorite animal to cook with. So I've always asked chefs, you know, and we're sort of just all sitting around prepping. Like if you're stuck on an island, you're allowed one, one animal, one fruit, one what? Like, and mine's always pig. Like, I mean, it's, it's so versatile. Um, tastes amazing. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. There are many paths to a career in food. Some come from families that place food at the heart of everything. Others land on food out of necessity and discover a whole enticing new world. Jimmy Richardson's journey began as a child, going home from school for lunch where he'd take control of the kitchen and create pasta or rice meals for himself while his mother was at work. Jimmy, how are you? I'm very good, thank you, yourself? Good. Take us back to that time when, when you were a kid and on the pans in the family kitchen. What what, what sort of uh, led to that? Well, I'm not really sure, to be honest. I mean, um, I always sort of had a bit of a knack for cooking. Um, I've got a couple of really early memories of helping my mum in the kitchen. Um, but yeah, I mean, when, when I was at school, um, my mum didn't really want to give me extra money for uh, eating out. So I sort of had to do the walk home every lunch and... Uh, she was a nurse, she was at work maybe 13 hours a day. And uh, yeah, I was left to my own devices and uh, my sister was already finished school, so she was out of the house. So it was really uh, make a sandwich or cook something hot and Glasgow's pretty cold. So <laughs> it's uh, always a good idea to have something warm in the afternoon. You said that you uh, have a couple of early memories of cooking with your mum. Can you share some of them with us? Yeah, uh, when I was about six years old, I was sort of playing in a swing park behind my house. And I jumped off a swing and I broke a bone in my arm. And uh, I sort of went home, sort of crying. <laughs> and uh, I said my mum was a nurse and she was uh, working across the uh, across the road at the hospital and just my dad at home. So I sort of went home and told him, oh, I've really hurt my arm. Uh, it really hurts. And uh, he told me I was at it and uh, sent me to bed because I was complaining too much. So the next day my mum came home from my night shift and... Uh, Realize, uh, realize I'd had a broken bone in my arm because it was all bruised and uh, took me to the hospital. So I got the day off school and uh, once she'd done all her sort of, uh, all her jobs that day, uh, we went home and we cooked like uh, little spinach and ricotta money bags uh, and phyllo pastry. And yeah, you know, I was about six, maybe six at the time. So yeah, I mean, like, obviously I was sort of in a bit of pain the night before and it was just good to have a day off school, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about sort of when you first started to think about a career in food. What was your first step into the industry? Uh, well, to be honest, I mean, there's not so much an apprenticeship system in Scotland. Well, it wasn't when I was there. It was kind of like you enrolled into college and uh, you sort of found a job yourself or one of your lecturers or tutors sort of found you a job uh, with one of their mates, which made you feel like you're indebted to them. Um, so you, there was, you couldn't have any mistakes or slip-ups because your lecture would hear about it. So, um, no, basically I left school about 15. Um, pretty much stopped going when I was 14, but officially left when I was 15. Um, and I kind of, because of my age, I was made to go to a, a, in, a career counsellor uh, to make sure that I didn't just become another dull kid. 
um, and end up on benefits. So I sort of got sent down to this uh, office once a week and they sort of sent me to the swimming pool to be a lifeguard. Um, I was fairly active. I did quite a lot of sports, so I'm trying to focus around that. As long as I didn't have to sit behind the desk was kind of like the direction I gave them. Um, so they sent me to a swimming pool, they sent me to a sports facility and then... Um, the apprenticeships were ridiculous. I mean, you're going to make about 60 quid a week for about 40 hours work, which, yeah, it was ridiculous. So um, I had, uh, I sort of said, oh, what about something outdoors? So I sort of, they sent me to the parks. Um, so I sort of, <laughs> um, basically just keeping, uh, Glasgow's got a lot of parks, so uh, to keep them all sort of like looking good and stuff. But one day, one day at the three we were there, it rained in the morning and we spent the whole day in the port cabin. Um, just reading the newspaper over and over again, chatting shit, and uh, yeah, smoked my one cigarette by then. So <laughs> I have any cigarettes for the rest of the day. So and I just realised it wasn't for me because as soon as it rained, I mean, you couldn't do anything. You just had to sit around all day doing nothing until the rain stopped. And it rains a lot, obviously. So I mean, um, no, I kind of just fell into it. They said, "Well, what other sort of traits do you have, mate?" And I said, "Oh, none of my mates could cook pasta or rice, and I could." And uh, I just sort of mentioned that, and they were like, why don't you be a chef? And I was like, well, yeah, I always needed discipline in my life. Um, and I yeah, sort of enrolled in college when I was 15. Uh, I turned 16 shortly after, and then everywhere I went wouldn't hire me because of the, they yeah, 16 years old, they didn't really want a 16-year-old in the kitchen. Um, you know what I mean? I probably, probably came across not as the most uh, reliable person in um at that age and uh, maybe like had to start off at um a pub um for about six months to a year um and then i broke my hand and because i was casual um they sort of let me go um and then when i was 18 i got my first job in a proper restaurant it was a seafood restaurant uh in the center of glasgow a really old old sort of restaurant i mean like what Looking back at it now, what they taught me probably wasn't the right way to do things. By the time it was all, when it's all new to you, you know what I mean? Like what they teach you is like God, you know? And uh, so uh, we worked with a lot of live seafood, which was incredible uh, for in Scotland. Um, and just getting to like, I mean, I'd never tasted an oyster before. I knew mussels um, from going on holiday and stuff. But no, I really like just sort of like working with sort of like live lobsters, live langoustines. Um, it was just incredible. Um, and yeah, like it was, it got, it ended up getting taken over by a sort of chain from England, and there was their only f like fine dining restaurant, and they started getting in things a bit more sort of like the langoustines didn't come in live anymore; they came in frozen, uh, or if they were f if they were fresh, they weren't alive still. And um, yeah, so I left there after a year, and uh, sort of bounced around a little bit, um, and ended up. Uh, with a chef called Brian Moles, uh, aka Jockey, and he had been the uh, head chef at uh, the Gavroche um, from about 25 years old. So I'd like, I'd like to think that's when my real sort of training began, um, sort of when I went in there. Um, and just, um, he was tough, <laughs> to say the least. I mean, he, I think he had gone to Lyon when he was 17 uh, to work in a three-star. Um, couldn't speak the language, so he'd, he had done it done it pretty tough i think um so we we definitely uh it was definitely ran like a sort of london style kitchen um, <laughs> um but no it was it was good we sort of learned a lot of classics you know and sort of uh very fast paced you know there's a lot of a lot going on i think his restaurant's still there i haven't been haven't been back to glasgow for a while but um it's still there but he was a he was a great influence
Tell us a little bit about Glasgow and Scotland and the food there. Does does pork um, land in many dishes at all? Uh, I mean, Scottish food's very simple. Um, we'd certainly, we certainly use it. Um, I think probably in Scotland, I mean, the most well-known would probably be our, our bacon. we got um, Esher bacon, so it's sort of... Um, pretty well known for it it's uh use like a certain type of pig i think it's a la- the white land race pig um and basically it's just real good quality good uh, fat to meat ratio and uh, they sort of uh, cure it for a couple of days and then dry it for three weeks um it's that sort of bacon that when you cook it it shrinks um down to nothing so i mean you get you get a pack of eight rashes that's one bacon roll um <laughs> whereas over here you cook a piece of bacon it barely shrinks so i mean um but now they do a sort of uh they sort of roll the bacon and esha esha middle bacon it's sort of uh the eye of the eye of the meat and then they wrap it with the uh streaky bacon uh, it's known as esha middle bacon and that's that's definitely a touch of class in a in a morning roll um but no, we do a lot of uh, we do a lot of uh, pork there. It's just not necessarily like actual dishes. Um, obviously, like we have a, a huge amount of seafood. Um, yeah, incredible seafood. To be honest, I mean the waters around Scotland are just beautiful. Um, hand dive scallops, you know. Um, yeah, I mean obviously everyone knows about the grouse seasons. I mean Scotland's like so rich and abundant in uh, natural produce. Um, but to be honest, I mean, unless you're paying, paying top, top dollar, um, most of it goes down to London or France, um, just because Scottish people, majority of people aren't going to pay um, those sort of prices that they would pay in London. So uh, money talks, and uh, not a lot of the produce really ends up in Scotland, to be honest. How did you end up in Australia? Uh, well, first, because uh, I worked for Jockey and he had that connection uh, with the Rue brothers from his time at Gavroche, he uh, had two options. I either went down to uh, the Quat Saisons um, or I went over to Amsterdam. I sort of always wanted to have a bit of a work-life balance. That was the idea. Um, and I couldn't imagine living in London and traveling two, three hours a day on three buses and two tubes um, to get home every night. Um, it really didn't appeal to me. Um, so I sort of came over to, I went over to Amsterdam and did a five day stage, love what they were doing. Um, Albert would come over once a month and do dinners and sort of like check in with us all and make sure we're all good. Um, I spent about two and a half years there. Um, but as soon as I got there, I sort of, I was in the pub one day watching the football and an advert came on. I'm not sure if it was tourism Australia or if it, but it was an advert for Australia. And I just looked at and just thought, oh, that's about as far as I can go without coming back. Um, and obviously the internet was sort of becoming a real thing at the time, you know, it was sort of like more, you had easier access to it. Um, I mean, you didn't have it on your phone and most people didn't have internet in the house, but they had the internet cafes. So just sort of, uh, it just sort of started looking at Australia and sort of mentioned it pretty early on um, to my exec chef at the time. And he was like, well, you know, obviously with, through Albert and uh, his brother, Michelle, um, they have a lot of connections all over the world, so just let them know where you want to go, and they'll set you up. And uh, basically, because I had sort of resigned, but gave them a year's notice, I just let put them put them all out. Um, Albert came and did my uh, came and did my review, and uh, basically, first line was "You're an asshole, boy." <laughs> For some reason, now uh, he expected me to resign personally to him. Um, and I hadn't, so yeah, I started off my uh, 
my uh, sort of review by calling me an asshole, um, <laughs> which I appreciate because he could have said, uh, you know, I wasn't important enough to care about. So, uh, so he sort of set me up with uh, Luke Mangan, uh, who used to work through um, uh, the Waterside Inn. So obviously they they went up on all their uh, alumni, and uh, he had actually closed Salt by then and opened Glass. So um, I sort of came I came over here with the sort of idea that there could be a job, but there wasn't. And uh, I think for my birthday and Christmas present, my uh, mum and dad bought me a one way flight here, not a return, a one way. <laughs> uh, and I sort of paid for about ten days in a hostel and. After that, I was uh, complete on my own, no money, no nothing. So I came over here and I had to wait about four weeks, I think, um, to speak to Joey Pav um, and basically arrange my interview. It took about four weeks. So I was just sort of bummed around the city, didn't know anybody. Knew a few people in the hostel, but that was about it. And uh, I turned up to my interview late because of Daylight Savings. I had no idea there was a thing called Daylight Savings. So I sort of turned up, turned up for my interview uh, with Joey and Luke Mangan an hour late, and uh, yeah, I had no idea. Um, so yeah, I was off to a great start. Um, and then Joey was like, "Can you do pastry?" And I thought, "For fuck's sake!" <laughs> the last question I wanted to be asked, I was like, "Nah, I'm not really great at pastry. It's not really my thing." Um, but eventually, he sort of found a place for me in the big kitchen, in the main kitchen, um, and it was incredible. Um, the numbers they were doing, I had never done numbers like that before um the crossover between asian ingredients and sort of classical french techniques was just you know coming from a classic background i was always taught there's one way of doing things and that's pretty much one way and one way only and then coming here and realizing like it's a complete melting pot it's the big, biggest city i'd ever lived in uh most multicultural city i'd uh, ever lived in so it was it's a real eye-opener you know but um yeah, it was it was incredible. I mean, still talk to Joey Pav now. He's a great guy. So, you've worked at some pretty incredibly influential restaurants uh, in Sydney, Cafe Passy and Bridge Room. Well, do you have any stories of, of what those kitchens were like? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, Bridge Room was tough. Um, that was uh, I sort of, I was working somewhere before, and I'd sort of like been been there as part of my visa for like four years and. Worked my way up to sort of acting head chef because uh, I didn't want to take the head chef job. I wanted to wait for my visa to come through because I'd heard about Ross coming back and opening a restaurant and I was dying to get into it, dying to work there. So I sort of uh, bided my time until um, my visa came through and I, uh, I, uh, yeah, I went for a trial. Ross sort of, I sent my email in and Ross called me within like 20 minutes of me sending send my email through and he was like, coming for a trial. And uh, I was like, all right. Um, and I just finished after four and a half years at this place. So in my head, I wanted a wee bit of a break. Um, I had a 10-day holiday in Bali uh, coming up. So I sort of like, and he was like, coming for a trial, uh, see how you feel. So I went in and just realized like just the level, like how good how good it was. And just, he was, he was masterful. I mean, like he really hit the nail on the head of restaurants at that time. Um, and yeah, it was just the caliber of chefs that were going through that kitchen. I mean... I mean, some of the some of the people I worked with. I was just over. I was there just over a year and a bit, and I think when I left, I was the second longest person that had ever worked there. Um, I, th- I think the average was like six to eight months. I mean, it was a tough kitchen. It was nonstop. Um, it was busy. <laughs> it was yeah. We would get like double. Um, I mean, it was so small, and the numbers we were doing. I mean, it was just you'd spend two hours a day putting away deliveries. Um, 
And uh, not long after, not long after I started, maybe three or four months after I started, uh, Steve Moore, the chef de cuisine, left. And uh, I think on my first weekend, I'd been thrown onto the Rabata Grill, um, and I'd never really cooked over charcoal except at home on the barbecue. So I mean, it was a it was a true baptism of fire, and uh, I thought, sort of dealt with it. I think fairly well. Um, wasn't too much protein left at the end of service <laughs> Ross maybe saw like there was something in me that I hadn't come from like at that time I hadn't come from like two hat or three hat background um I'd worked um and I think he saw that I could I could do the job and when Steve left he sort of said I oh, just basically uh you know I want you to take over Steve's Steve's job um and I was like you kidding me right like I mean there was chefs chefs behind me that were just sort of like on a you know more experience more skills I mean I worked at the time with Jason Saxby um you know I mean he was there um but yeah there was there was a lot of like quality quality chefs um went through that place I mean Steve Moore out in Bali at the moment is just doing brilliant things um he's got a resume that would you know would scare most other chefs um he's a good friend as well so I mean yeah I learned a lot in that kitchen Ross was uh obviously like come back from doing the whole sort of hotel kitchen director sort of thing after 14 years so I think it, for him it was really tough getting back into that sort of that push every day um and realizing like you know even though we had like some some really good chefs in that kitchen it was still a struggle to get everything ready and top to his standing and stuff but it was brilliant um and when I decided I went back to Europe for maybe a, a three-week holiday um I was sort of going back for my cousin's wedding and I uh, sort of ate a couple of like really, really top-notch places. Um, De La Braya, which is my favorite, uh, one of my favorite restaurants I've ever eaten at, and uh, quite inspiring, like uh, story from the from the chef owner. Um, and uh, yeah, I sort of came back and I said to Ross, I said, like, it's just you know, I've sort of feel like I've done what I've done here. Um, I can't really go much. I was running the past pretty much, so I couldn't really go anywhere else. Um, and I sort of said, like, I want to go, and he said, well, that's fine, like. Um, I gave him a couple months notice and I said, I really want to go and work for Passy. Um, I'd eaten there about a month or two before and I was just, I just, what he was doing was incredible. I mean, it was on a whole different, it was on a whole different level to what I'd done before, even including the bridge room, you know? Um, so yeah, he sort of set me up a sort of trial, um, at Cafe Passy, the original. So it was, uh. I mean, I think if anyone had seen that kitchen, it was, it was brutal. I mean, there wasn't one flat bench in the whole place. I mean, you said, it was like you're plating half the dishes on a seesaw. It was uh, it was pretty incredible. I mean, the food we were doing as well. I mean, it was uh, it was brilliant. It was uh, I couldn't do it for too long. Um, it was just <laughs> I did it about eight months. Um, but it, it was brilliant. I uh, I loved I loved working at Passy's. I worked with Hans, who's doing doing great things in Paris now. Um, and obviously Passy's gone on to open a, a permanent sort of location, uh, which, you know, is stunning. I mean, I learned a lot about bread. Uh, I sort of trained up on, trained me up on Lada for about six weeks until the the Lada chef left and I was meant to just step in naturally into his role because I'd been trained on that and sort of walked in a couple of days before. Um, well, I was doing sort of like two days a week, three days a week um, for six weeks because that's all Passy could offer me because the budgets were very tight. And then he said, look, just before uh, Valentine's Day, one of the boys is leaving, you can take over his his position. So I trained up on his position. Six weeks in, thought pretty confident about this, uh, helping out pastry bits and pieces there. Walked in on my first day and he goes, Jimmy, you're on pastry. 
And anyone who's been through that kitchen knows pastry was an absolute bastard of a section. I mean, <laughs> the kitchen had no proper ventilation. We were doing candy floss, uh, which was about a two and a half hour job. And if you yeah, if you fucked it up, it was about a four hour job. And, <laughs> and it was very easy to make a mistake. Um, but no, just his his ingenuity, uh, taking a taking something so mundane and just turning it into something so brilliant um, was really inspiring. Or it made you think more, and it made you think about food more, uh, because everything tasted spot on, but it was creative as well. And I think that was a great balance with Passy. Was like he came across like it was almost minimalist, but there'd been a lot of thought and a lot of uh, uh, trial and a lot of process to get to that point. Tell us about the move to Brisbane. Uh, well, yeah, I was that. Uh, I was sort of. I think it was always in my plan, like. No matter where I go in the world, it's never going to be really home. Um, and I just kind of felt like I'd done everything that I wanted to do there. Um, and it was more convincing my wife. Um, she's not originally from Australia, but she had lived there for uh, eight years at the time. My sister was there. She had uh, aunties and all that. So it was more about convincing my wife. And it was more, it was like, do you want to own a house or do you want to, you know, continually rent or live out in the Blue Mountains and commute every day. And I think that kind of won her over. Um, and it was just it was just one of those things. I mean, Sydney's just nonstop. Um, and I loved it, but like I said, it was never home. So a lot of people during the COVID and stuff had left. Um, so it was pretty much like back to square one. I had a very, you know, four or five people stayed that I was sort of like new and hung about with. Everyone else had left and gone back uh, to Europe or wherever they were from. So it was just kind of like, for me, it was a perfect time. Um, I kept working all the way through COVID. I'd actually got promoted. Um, so I pretty much took the extra money I made and managed to get a deposit together for, uh, for a house. And we just sort of just decided that was it. We're going to, we're going to go up there. And I mean, yeah, I mean, growing up in Scotland, you think I don't mind the cold. I hate it. Um, <laughs> I always hated it, but I hated being cold. I uh, hated being wet all the time. Um, yeah, and it was just to come up to Brisbane and it's, uh, I mean, it does rain a fair bit up here, but it's warm. And I think, yeah, it's now, now I've got to convince my wife to move up to Ken's uh, or some, <laughs> somewhere even warmer. Um, but no, it's been, it's been great. You know, I came up here and uh, uh, managed to get a job as head chef at Gerard's uh, with Wolfie. And it's sort of perfect timing. He's sort of, just sent him a message on Instagram. I'd never met him, so I said, look, I can come in and help out a couple of days a week. And, uh, yeah, it just turn, turned out by the time, between me messaging him and actually going in for my first day, uh, a couple of people had resigned. Um, and one of them was the head chef. Um, so he basically just, after my first day, he said, do you want to uh, do you want to take the head chef job? And to be honest, I was like, uh like not really but at the same time I was like it's too good opportunity um it's too good opportunity to say no to be honest um so I sort of took the head chef job and I mean Gerard's like great place to work I mean you're sort of like some of the chefs that come through there quality chefs um got to work with uh, his famous bread which uh you know was daunting at first um <laughs> Um, but no, it was, uh, it was brilliant working with fire, you know, very creative chef. Um, and it was just, it was just good fun. I mean, plus we did four day weeks there. Um, 
which, you know, was brilliant. You know, you'd have three days off. Um, I didn't know anyone in Brisbane at the time, so it was kind of like, it was bittersweet. Um, found myself standing around a lot, which I'm not used to. Um, but no, I mean, like, it was, yeah, it was a brilliant, brilliant place to work. Tell us a bit about Leonard's Bistro and what you're doing there. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the sort of job came up. Um, job came up just at Christmas time last year, and uh, I spoke the the owner of the company. Sort of, he's based down in Sydney. Um, owns a basically they had taken over the lease a year before, and it hadn't gone to plan. They had opened during COVID in the CBD of Brisbane, so it, was, it wasn't going great. Um, they basically wanted me in as soon as possible. I said that there's no way I can, there's no way I can come in straight away. Um, and he was completely understanding. Although his background is sort of like hospitality, it's not necessarily restaurants. And he said, "Look, I don't want you to burn any bridges. And if we have to close a restaurant for a couple of weeks, and I knew straight away then he was serious. He was like, he wants to make a real go of this. He's not just like get it open, get it done, and uh, let's start making money. He was deadly serious about setting something up. Uh, and just building, building something. So we sort of we we have a sister company above the restaurant, which is called the Lara Learning, which sort of trains um, trains people to get into the industry. Maybe uh, people made redundant, people on um, on the dole, um, and that's that was that's his company that's based all over uh, the east side of Australia. And Leonard's is their first sort of bricks and mortar shop. Um, and basically, we just—I've just come in there and just said, let's just focus on good quality produce um, and consistency. You know, we're not looking to change, uh, reinvent the wheel. Um, it is on—it is on the former site of Urbane. Um, so when you walk through it, it's almost like a, a mini hotel. We sort of got a, can, a, a prep kitchen that we use for canopy functions downstairs. We got a PDR the size of most restaurants. Um, we got about seven, we've just enlarged the bistro now um, through demand to 65. It was at like 45 before. And then we've got a back bar, which can take another 150 people plus a courtyard in the laneway. Uh, so obviously when I was getting the walkthrough by the GM, I was sort of like, wow, oh, this is huge. Um, <laughs> I, I can couldn't imagine the possibilities. I mean, it's just sort of like, it's, it's endless. I mean, it's a, it's a real restaurant that we can grow into. Um, at the moment, obviously, like, there's a lot of competition. Brisbane food scene's really, really stepped its game up over the last like five years, ten years. And I think I came ten years ago, and there was a, a few restaurants to eat at, and that was really it, to be honest. I mean, um, but now it's you know with James Street. I mean, Eagle Street's closed now, and they're looking to do big things around Mary Street where we're based. Uh, I think Guy Grossi's opening uh, a couple of hundred meters down the road. Um, yeah, I mean it's a uh, with the Eagle Street Pier, I mean, we're hoping that it's going to become a bit of a bit of a centre point for food. Um, but yeah, we're just sort of steady plugging away at what we do. We're using good quality projects. It's very hard sometimes because we don't have a reputation to convince people, like, this is why they're paying this much because it's good quality produce. And obviously every, everybody in the industry knows how ridiculous food prices are. I mean, you don't even have to be in the industry, to be honest. You just have to go to Woolies um, and realise the cost of living has just skyrocketed and... It's very hard to sort of balance that um, with people's expectations nowadays. Um, but no, it's kind of been a bit of a bit, bit of a godsend. This uh, Leonard, um, it's sort of like I've got a boss that believes in what I'm doing and sort of leaves me to it, really. Um, which you know is when people aren't in the industry, they can sometimes meddle a little bit. Um, so yeah, it's been uh, it's been it's a really good working relationship. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty pretty happy with the 
happy how the first year sort of panned out. Let's talk a bit about pork. How does it weave through the menu that you have at the moment? Oh, well, at the moment, I mean, we've got uh, one pork dish on at the moment, but we'll always have a pork dish. Uh, it's, my, it's my favorite animal uh, to cook with. I sort of always ask chefs, you know, when we're sort of just all sitting around prepping. Like, if you're stuck on an island, you're allowed one, one animal, one fruit, one what? Right? And mine's always pig. Right? I mean, it's, it's so versatile. Um, tastes amazing. Um, so, I mean, at the moment, we have uh, Bangalore uh, sweet pork tomahawks on the menu. They've been on, uh, they've been on about two months now. Um, they come in whole racks, and we sort of uh, get them up in the fridge, drying for about four or five days, just get some of that extra moisture out of them. Um, but they cook up absolutely beautiful. They're from um, just outside uh, Byron Bay, um, but it's brilliant. We sort of serve it very simple, crackle it up, finish it over the uh, hot coals, and uh, serve it with a caper sauce. Um, but no, it goes down an absolute treat. Um, it's pretty big for one person, so you often find like tables of two having it together. But yeah, it's absolutely. Uh, yeah, Australia loves pork. I think. Um, I think that goes without saying. So it's a fairly easy sell for the uh, for the team out front. You mentioned the pig is uh, your favourite animal, and it's so versatile. Um, take us through uh, the pig and break it down, and and what you use different parts for. Well, yeah, I mean. I used to uh, I used to work in a kitchen um, before I went to the bridge room, and we would always get um, whole suckling pigs in. So I think I've probably broken down what feels like about a thousand suckling pigs. Um, me, I mean, personally, you can can't go wrong with a poketta. Um, funny thing is, if you put belly on the menu, people turn their nose up at it. You put poketta on the menu, and it's a uh, it's a surefire hit. Um, so no, I mean I, I mean I love all, all aspects of pork. I love uh, lardo, guanciale. Um, my wife's uh, originally from the Philippines, so we sort of uh, we have a heavy, heavy amount of uh, pork in our diet sometimes. <laughs> um, but no, I mean even even up to using the heads for sea sig. Um, yeah, I mean I just yeah break them down. I mean with a suckling pig, you break the legs down into individual muscles, and. Uh, just just cook them just under me like medium well and they're just they're just beautiful i mean it's just yeah i don't know <laughs> it's just it's just uh it's just it's great to work with you know and it's always that sort of like getting that crackle up and then cooking it to that perfect temperature um yeah you mentioned that you've broken down uh, a lot of suckling pigs in, in your time um take us through that process what's what's the secret to getting that right and breaking it down properly Oh, I mean, weirdos. Weirdos start center of the pig, so sort of pick, go down seven to eight bones, um, depending on size. Remove the remove the uh, bellies in the rib cage, and then start working on the legs. Um, so break once you uh, once you take them off the bone and sort of butterfly them, open them. You can sort of really break down the individual muscles on the leg. Um, we used to, yeah we used to try and. Uh, air dry it as much as possible to try and get that crackle because sometimes with suckling pig it could be a could be a real nuisance trying to get that crackle um and actually get it to crisp up so we'd sort of uh we'd either sort of cover them cover the skin in salt um and then sort of wipe it off and air dry it or we would just air dry it as long as we could um but yeah once i mean what you can actually do with a pig i mean it's incredible we'd sort of at, that, at the place uh we'd sort of break down the forequarter um, that would all be braised, 
rolled. Um, if the pigs, suckling pigs were big enough, we'd get the cheeks out of them. We'd sort of, um, yeah, I mean, I just break down every single individual bit um, and maximise it. And the bones would be made to made of stock. Um, you mentioned uh, that your wife is from the Philippines and uh, pork is a big part of your diet. Is there any sort of signature dishes from home that you um, that you go to with pork? Uh, Bickle Express. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's pretty much just pork cooked in coconut milk, shrimp paste. Um, it's from the Bickle region, from uh, which is like known for their super hot sort of like fiery food. Um, so it's very very spicy, but obviously. When we're cooking at home, we kind of got to cook from my, with my son in mind, and uh, even black pepper he thinks is spicy. Well, he thinks he thinks sparkling water is spicy. So I mean, I mean, sort of. So we sort of normally now have to add sort of our chili afterwards. Um, but no, I'd say like Bickle Express. Um, yeah, there's uh, my wife makes uh, caldereta with pork belly sometimes, uh, adobo with pork belly. But to be honest, seasick um, is probably it's just very labor intensive breaking breaking down a pig's face, cooking it all, and then, um, but no, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, sort of once a week minimum pork. I'm only at home three nights a week. That's sort of, uh, you know, one out of three. <laughs> You've uh, had quite an impact since uh, you moved to Australia and uh, doing amazing things at Leonard. So what do you love about what you do? I love the I love the buzz. Um, I sort of, I don't know, I don't know. I know when I took this job, it was, uh, it was sort of maybe my wife's expectations was I'd be home a lot more than I am. Um, but I get restless. I can't sit in front of a TV at night. Um, I feel like I should be doing things. And so, I mean, yeah, the buzz. Uh, Saturday night, I mean, we had a canopy function for 50 people. We had a PDR for 25 people. And we had uh, nearly 50 people in the restaurant. And uh, the chef set off the fire alarm. <laughs> and uh it's, it's all le- linked um so the extraction the extraction cut off so we had two uh hibachi grills going um and so it was like a, a smoky sauna um and the fireman took like 45 minutes um to arrive so slowly the restaurant was filling up with smoke <laughs> we were still cooking and i just sort of uh even even throughout like cooking and it was just filling up with smoke and it was roasting hot. I was just sort of like, had that inner smile and I was just like, this is what it's all about. <laughs> maybe, maybe not quite as stressful, but I mean, this, that's what it's all about. Just the buzz, the drive. And uh, yeah, just keeping keeping a certain set of standards and just trying to like inspire people to like have those standards. Um, obviously, it's, it's very hard now in the industry with um, chefs coming through. You know, it's sort of, it's not the way it used to be where like, you should be thankful you got a job. There's always someone that's going to pay more. There's always someone that's going to give you better working conditions, better hours. Um, and we're sort of balancing that between like trying to do good stuff. Um, and we're trying to balance that. I mean, like I said, we've got a parent company above us and they're very strict about not working more than 45 hours a week, um, which over five days, I mean, we're open nine services plus functions. It's very difficult. Um, we're only a team of five chefs. Um, I sort of, I do pot wash pretty much every night I'm there. I do the pass and then I go into pot wash and do pot wash till about 10, 11 o'clock at night. Um, so, I mean, it's just, it's just leading by example, you know, I like, I don't, I don't expect someone to do the pot wash if I don't, if I can't do it. Um, I don't expect people to, you know, push hard. I mean, I'm always the first in last out. Um, 
because I think it's important nowadays to show. I've worked for chefs before that you know would wander in, do four or five hour shift, and walk back out again, and then wonder why no one wants to work there and why everyone's pissed off. And say, like, well, because you don't lead by example. That's why <laughs> you know you, you know do as I say, you know sort of thing. So no, it's just it's fun. It's fun seeing like turning someone into a chef that you know goes from like oh, it's just a job to actually like a true passion. Um, and then that take the small the small wins. You know, um, it's very. It can be very unrewarding sometimes. Um, you know, the amount of effort you put in, no one sees that. Uh, no one sees what you really put into it, what you miss, you know. I don't think, I don't think I've had a birthday off, my wife's birthday off and since I met her 10 years ago. So, I mean, it's just, it is what it is, you know. I worked my first, my son's first three Christmases I had to work, you know, and like, it's just, it's those little things, you know. So, the small rewards, you know, like seeing someone actually inspired by food, someone tasting something and their eyes lighting up, and just realizing like, yeah, that's kind of what it's about, you know. Amazing. Well, Jimmy, it's an honor to have you today on The Crackling. Um, please keep in touch and uh, good luck with Leonard's and we'll catch up again soon. Hi, great talking to you. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.